From WOUB News, you're listening to The Outlet, where campus meets community. I'm April Leslie. Each week on The Outlet, we bring you stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. This week, the Pope visited the United States. We'll check in with area religious leaders to get their reactions. People can see he's, he's genuine, he practices what he preaches, and that's, that's a very attractive thing, I, I think, to people these days, that kind of authenticity. He wants his priests to be, you know, to be, uh, you know, with, with the faithful, and, and so he's with the faithful. And we'll explore how horses are being used in therapy programs in a place not too far from Athens. Those stories and more are coming up on The Outlet. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Outlet. Starting this semester, Ohio University students have the option to add preferred names and pronouns to their student profile. These new preferred names and pronouns will appear on all class rosters, academic advising sheets, and student IDs. It's an effort to become more inclusive to students' personal identities. But while the new policy aims to be more inclusive, there are other events for students that aim to be exclusive. These factors all add up to a complex dynamic when it comes to the rapidly changing landscape of gender identity. Reporter Zane Parsons has more on how the university is navigating this sea of change. It was supposed to be a straightforward story about a self-defense class, but when I arrived at the Ohio University Women's Center, I was told it was a female-only event and I would not be allowed inside. One problem, the event was never advertised as a women's-only self-defense class. Oh, um, it was... It was supposed to be. It was kind of just an oversight when I was creating the poster that I, um, meant to put it on there and just, uh, didn't. That was Sarah Jenkins, who is the program coordinator at the Women's Center. Sarah made a mistake. Everyone makes mistakes. But this is not a story about Sarah. This is a story about the larger questions of inclusion and exclusion in the changing landscape of gender, sexuality, and identities. What if a student who identifies outside the male-female binary wanted to participate in a women's-only or men's-only event? What if this student appears to look male but identifies as a female or vice versa? How should a university work to include everyone when that might mean excluding others? The university is committed to creating safer spaces for specific groups. What that looks like in practice, though, is it's tricky, and there isn't a 1 plus 1 equals 2 equation. And so it is balancing, making sure that the LGBT center, the women's center, the multicultural center, that we're not limited to what our titles are. That's Delphine Batista with the Ohio University LGBT Center. Batista identifies as trans or two-spirit. Batista prefers to use they or them pronouns or to simply be referred to as Delphine, so throughout the rest of the story, we'll be using those preferences when referring to Delphine. They say that while the situation is in fact tricky, constant conversations between staff members is needed to continue to make sure all students feel safe on campus. It is most definitely uh, a dynamic and a conversation that needs to be thought of just because more and more we're recognizing that how a person presents themselves or expresses themselves isn't necessarily a reflection of how they identify. We're recognizing that gender and gender expression and gender identity are much more complicated and that uh, what you see isn't always what is. 
These conversations are important for university progression. In an email interview with Dr. Sherry Clark, the Vice Provost of the Office for Diversity and Inclusion, she mentioned that while her staff hasn't discussed these types of situations, the office seeks frequent input from consultants, assessments, and elicit feedback from faculty, staff, and students on a regular basis. Clark says the Office for Diversity and Inclusion is scheduled to get LGBT sensitivity and pronoun use training this fall. After talking with officials like Delphine and Dr. Clark, it is apparent that Ohio University is having conversations about what inclusion should mean for the student community. It is also obvious that these necessary changes will not happen overnight. Oftentimes people come to me wanting uh, a very simple answer and end up leaving more confused uh, just because it really is complicated. And so when we have a men's only space or women's only space, the number one question is, what do we mean by man? What do we mean by woman? And who gets to define it? There are no easy answers uh, to that. Uh, and so, but more and more, the conversation is, is starting to, to pop up. So no easy answers and plenty of questions, but an ongoing conversation aimed at making the campus a welcoming place for all. For The Outlet, I'm Zane Parsons. Pope Francis is now back at the Vatican after visiting the United States last week. Although the Catholic leader did not visit the region, local parishes celebrated his presence in the country. WOUB's Jeremy Ludeman reports. The Pope came to the U.S. for the World Meeting of Families in Philadelphia. He concluded the summit on Sunday by holding an open-air mass on the Ben Franklin Expressway. Earlier in the week, Francis became the first pontiff to speak to a joint session of Congress and also made remarks at the U.N. General Assembly in New York. Although most Catholics in the region did not travel to see the Pope in person, 50 parishioners from churches in Guernsey and Noble Counties attended his open-air mass. Congregations throughout Southeast Ohio were represented by the Bishop of Steubenville, the Most Reverend Jeffrey Monforton. He followed Francis throughout a six-day visit. The pontiff came to the country at a time where he enjoys significant American support. A recent New York Times poll reported 63% of the nation's Catholics approve of his leadership. Father Mike Harchie from St. Peter Catholic Church in Chillicothe says the Pope is popular because he's approachable and sincere. People can see he's, he's genuine, he practices what he preaches, and that's, that's a very attractive thing, I, I think, to people these days, that kind of authenticity. He wants his priests to be, you know, to be, uh, you know, with, with the faithful, and, and so he's with the faithful. Ohio University student and Catholic group member Jacob Welter says the pontiff emphasizes theology that some outside the church may see as unconventional. Um, I think what's different about this pope is that he chooses compassion over judgment in Catholic teachings. Um, and I think that that's a lot different from what people usually view the Catholic Church as. But will the Francis fever lead to more people going to Mass? Father Paul Rezzo from Christ Star Light Parish in Cambridge believes so. We do have a good number of people who are going to be involved in what we call the adult initiation step. We do have a larger group than the past several years, so I think... Yes, uh, part of that would be from uh, his impact. Francis has also been celebrated as a voice for the common man. Father David Huffman from the Catholic Community of Ironton says his parishioners can relate to the pontiff's message. People are living in ordinary means of trying to run schools and, and help out in the medical profession and have their own little shops or something to eke out a livelihood. I think uh, the Pope then means something to them, and they're trying to live out 
their life in a just an ordinary way, just to find joy in, in working and making a livelihood. Archie says he hopes people will be motivated by the Pope to do more to help those in need. He wants Catholics and other, you know, Christians to um, undertake in a better way the, the corporal works of mercy, the, the feeding the hungry, the clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, that sort of thing. So he's out there doing it, visiting the imprisoned and the sick. Pope Francis is the 266th leader of the Catholic Church and has served as pontiff since 2013. This was his first ever trip to the United States. I'm Jeremy Ludeman reporting for WOUB News. About 10 miles south of Athens, horses roam on wooded acres. But these particular horses have jobs, and they're a little non-traditional. Reporter Lily Bradley has more. Nestled at the end of a long, unpaved road sits nearly 200 wooded acres of ponds, trails, and wildlife. This peaceful, serene setting in Albany, Ohio, is home to a herd of horses. These gentle animals, Bodie, Ruby, Dreamer, Joey, Destiny, and Flash, are a huge part of a therapy team at a place called the Osage Corral. The Osage Corral is an equine and nature-based experiential counseling and learning center. That means they provide counseling to children, adults, and families through a hands-on approach, using horses. Tammy Baumgartel is the director of the Osage Corral. She turned to equine counseling after making huge advancements with a struggling client. Just within a few minutes of being in the arena with the horses, things started to happen. And he um, pretty quickly had some really powerful breakthroughs, and I was just sold. I said, this is what I have to do. This is so much more effective than what I'm doing in the office. The Osage Corral follows something called the EGALA model. In that model, there is a mental health professional and an equine specialist present during each session. The mental health professional is there for obvious reasons, while the equine specialist is there to keep everyone, including the client and the horse, safe. Tony Hammonds is an equine specialist at the Osage Corral. He says an equine specialist also serves as an interpreter for the horse. If I see the horses behaving in a way that I think is... Um uh, unique or if it's I think it's not a coincidence or whatever um, I might point that out to the mental health professional. Each horse has its own unique story and brings its own strengths to the program. Tammy says the horses often serve as metaphors for the people and situations in the clients lives. Children often project their own uh, inner lives onto the horses. According to Tammy, the entire program is based on the special brand of sensitivity unique to horses. Since horses are prey animals, they frequently pick up on many things in their surroundings that humans tend to miss. Oftentimes, that lets clients connect on a closer level. Children that we see and the families we work with often um, feel a great sense of connection to this place. The Osage Corral was recently awarded an $18,000 grant from the Epstein Teicher Philanthropies. The funds will be used to send 30 at-risk youth to the Corral's Summer 2015 Day Camp Series. For The Outlet, I'm Lily Bradley. After creating and managing his own successful business for over three decades, Larry Triplett now contributes his time helping other young entrepreneurs in the Muskingum County region grow their businesses and become established. Triplett currently acts as chairman of the Muskingum County Business Incubator. He also has been instrumental in founding the East Central Ohio Tech Angel Fund, which helps finance local entrepreneurs. Recently, he discussed with WOUB's Tom Hodson the growth of MCBI and how it meshes with Tech Growth Ohio in supplying innovation needs to the southeastern Ohio region. Today on the phone with me, we have Larry Triplett. He is the chairman of the Muskingum County Business Incubator, the MCBI. 
He's also uh, been a businessman himself. He co-founded Resource Systems, a healthcare software company in 1980, immediately upon graduating from Muskingum College. He and his business partner built that company over about a 31-year period. Uh, it became the premier provider of software for the nursing home industry. In fact, in 2011, Inc. INC magazine uh, listed it as one of the fastest growing companies in the nation, and it was then acquired by a public company. That was in 2011. Since then, Mr. Triplett contributes much of his time to the local region and is very involved in helping entrepreneurs and early-stage businesses. He has been instrumental in founding the East Central Ohio Tech Angel Fund, the ECOTAF, and he dedicates time to local colleges and universities, helping to establish a culture of entrepreneurism in this reason. Larry, first of all, welcome, uh, to, and uh, thanks for taking the time talking with us. Well, my pleasure, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, let's start off. Uh, you ran a successful business right out of college. Maybe it wasn't successful right away, but you took the path of being an entrepreneur and innovator from the get-go, as, as we say. So talk about that. How did you arrive at that decision way back in 1980? Well, it was a little bit of a, a whim, if you will, <laughs> Tom, um, my partner, my business partner, Greg Adams, and I were both at Muskingum College, uh, now Muskingum University at the time. And uh, between our junior and senior year in college, we, we decided to, you know, go out on our own instead of getting the typical college summer job. And so we, we decided uh, somehow we landed a contract with a, a food a restaurant chain painting lines on the <laughs> parking lots in about 23 restaurants throughout southeastern Ohio. Wow. So we spent our summer painting lines and, and at night and camping during the day because you obviously can't do that during the night. And, and then we, um, we came back and we did some, some painting for the Muskingum at that time. And uh, so our senior year, we said, well, if we actually, I, I applied at a bunch of um, Ivy League schools for a master MBA program. Right. And we decided if I got accepted, we would, I would do that. And if not, we would continue our business. And so <laughs> the rest is history. I didn't, I didn't get accepted. So we, we continued the business. And uh, it was at that time that computers were just, just starting to become somewhat known at that time in right. 1980. So um, there were, there were uh, operations that did data processing for businesses. And so that's what we felt we could start, and, and we started that. And like you said earlier, it took us about six or seven years till we could, till we really kind of got into the, uh, you know, kind of figured ourselves out. During those six or seven years, though, it was really a struggle and pretty lean years for us. We, we didn't really have a specialty, and it was very, you know, it was kind of tough for us to find our way. But then eventually, in about 1987, we we somehow landed a contract with a nursing home and developed some software for them, and they liked it. And then we continued down that path, and, and that's kind of what led us to become specialists in the nursing home world. 
But during those six or seven years of lean years, we call them the peanut butter and jelly years because that's about all we could eat. Uh, somewhere along the line, when we finally found our way, we, we started feeling like, boy, if we could help other people, other entrepreneurs go through those lean years faster than we did, um, if some way we could help them compress that time from seven years down to maybe just a year of, of lean times, that's really what this country needs is, is um, companies that can get up and going and, and find their way quickly and become profitable and, and good contributors to society quickly. Uh, we were fortunate that we had a good support group and good family and so forth that we were able to kind of maintain ourselves a little bit longer, but I'm sure many entrepreneurs don't have that luxury. So that's, that's a little bit what prompted the, the whole idea of trying to do some business incubation and try to help entrepreneurs in our area get, get on their feet quickly. Is it easier to be an entrepreneur in 2015 than it was in 1980 or 1985, or is it more difficult? You know, that's, that's a really good question, Tom. I've heard some statistics saying that the average age of entrepreneurs has come down dramatically in the past decade. I uh, understand that about 10 years ago, the average age was about 40 for people starting up businesses, and now it's in the mid to low 20s. And the claim is that because of the Internet and technology, the access to technology and the access to social media to promote your products, it's made it so that the cost of starting a company is, is dramatically less than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So um, it's really erased the geographic boundaries of, of uh, needing to be in a big, you know, San Francisco or New York or some big metropolitan area to start a company these days. So I think the answer to that is um, that it might be a little easier now, um, but it still it still isn't <laughs> still not still easy. Isn't right? a cakewalk. It's still pretty tough. Yeah, we have about a minute left, Larry, and and you have been a success at almost everything you've touched, and and obviously a successful entrepreneur and businessman. What are you getting out of this stage of your life? Well, I'm glad you say that. To me, the satisfaction is is helping people get through those lean, tough first peanut butter and jelly years quickly. And there's just nothing more satisfying than watching an idea in a person's head turn into reality and then grow so much that they start hiring people and supplying um, income and a living for numerous families around the area just because of that one idea that somebody had in their head. Larry Triplett, chairman of the Muskingum County Business Incubator, thanks so much, Larry, for talking with us today on our special edition of Conversations from Studio B, Innovation Conversations. We appreciate your participation, Larry. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. I'm Tom Hudson. Have a good day, everyone. Support 
backers of a proposed constitutional amendment to make marijuana legal in Ohio say doing so will make Ohioans safer, but opponents of that plan say it will do the opposite. In the second of her five-part series on Issue 3, Ohio Public Radio's Joe Ingalls looks at whether its passage will really cut down on crime. Retired Cincinnati Police Captain Howard Rott stands in front of a police car as he urges Ohioans to say yes to legalizing marijuana and this new spot being aired on television stations statewide. I saw firsthand the effects of Ohio's destructive marijuana laws. Simply put, they don't work. Responsible Ohio Ohio says allowing 10 growing sites, more than 1,100 retail stores, and limited home growing, all subject to clear rules, would put criminals who sell pot out of business. But the Ohio Fraternal Order of Police disagrees. So have the Buckeye State Sheriff's Association, the Ohio Chiefs of Police Association, and the Ohio Prosecuting Attorneys Association. Those organizations are endorsing the opposition effort. Kurt Steiner is heading up that group called Ohioans Against Marijuana Monopoly. Basically, every Ohio couple can have more than a pound of dope in their house legally. I I guarantee you that some of that's going to be sold to people on the black market. When asked about that, Responsible Ohio's Executive Director Ian James fires back. I really like Kurt a lot. He's uh, unfortunately the Ron Burgundy of uh, campaigns. You write a a line on a $1 bill and he's going to say it. James says there are rules for the home growing part of the plan. But he says it's important to remember there are Ohioans who are illegally growing pot for personal use now. He says issue three would simply give them an avenue to buy a license to make it legal. James says there wouldn't be home inspections, but growers could face losing their licenses if they're found to be breaking the law. And he thinks that's enough incentive to get most growers, both home and those with the 10 specified large growing facilities, to obey the law. Recently, a group that monitors drug trafficking for the Office of National Drug Control Policy released a report on marijuana legalization in Colorado. It shows increases in drug trafficking arrests, marijuana-related traffic deaths, and marijuana use by children. But James says fatalities are down in Colorado. He cites federal figures that show there is no increased crash risk associated with testing positive for marijuana. And he says the Colorado Healthy Kids Survey shows marijuana use among kids has actually gone down since legalization. Ben Marcus, a reporter with Colorado Public Radio, says legalizing pot for both medicinal and personal use in that state hasn't caused a spike in crime. The sky has not fallen. There's not rampant crime open in the streets. You know, our police departments are not overworked. Uh, If anything, it's taken some burden away from them, right, to not have to prosecute offenses of somebody carrying an ounce or less of marijuana on their person. Some activists who have tried to get Ohio lawmakers to allow medicinal marijuana are not happy about this plan because they fear it would not do enough to help some Ohioans. Tanya Davis says she takes offense to the fact that pot, under this proposal, would be regulated like alcohol and wouldn't be available to Ohioans who are under 21 years old. Davis says people who are 18 and up should be allowed to possess and use pot legally if this measure passes. If they're old enough to die for our country and fight for our country, they should be old enough to make that choice. 
a safer choice than, than what they're making now, which is alcohol and pills and heroin and methamphetamine and, and all those other choices that they're making. Davis notes college students often use marijuana, and sometimes they get caught. Marijuana convictions can haunt them for the rest of their lives. Responsible Ohio Director James says that's why his group has been collecting petition signatures to put another plan on the ballot next fall if this issue passes this November. Well, Responsible Ohio is working on the Fresh Start Act, which allows people who seek sentencing review and expungement for marijuana-related activities that will no longer be criminal offenses. But if Ohioans approve this plan this fall and college-age kids under 21 are caught using or growing pot in the future under this new law, their convictions would still stand. Joe Ingalls at the Ohio Public Radio Statehouse News Bureau. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for joining us. The outlet is produced each week by me, April Leslie. We're edited by Atish Baija, Susan Tebbin, and Allison Hunter. Adam Rich is our technical assistant, and our theme music is written and performed by Ryan Gabus. Subscribe to the outlet on iTunes or find us online at woub.org. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. Thanks for listening.